For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel and Republican political consultant Neva Hill, joining me over Zoom video conference. Oklahoma City is ending its enforcement over bars and restaurants, staying open after 11 o'clock. The decision came after the city, its police chief, and Mayor David Holt were sued by club owners and bartenders. Mayor Holt issued the order on on enforcement in response to Governor Stitt's ban on food or drink sales after 11 for 30 days. Ryan, what do you think about OKC pulling back on enforcement? Well, and, you know, when they say pulling back on enforcement, the the prohibition's still there. It's just a matter of whether or not they're going to be enforcing it with a separate fine and penalty on top of what the state may already do. You know, so you're not going to see Oklahoma City police officers out issuing citations. I think the amount was up to $750 mm-hmm. for violations of uh, of the curfew, the 11 p.m. curfew for bars and restaurants. So that's what's stopping. I mean, this, the curfew is still there. And if you look at state regulators, they said that there still may be consequences and licensing and fees uh, that, that operators may face if they begin to violate this. It should be noted that the state recognizes or the state is reporting, at least, that you're seeing compliance uh, almost across the board here. You know, almost everybody is complying with this. Nobody is disputing the fact that bar owners, employees of bars um, and restaurants are being seriously hurt by this. I mean, they've been seriously hurt by COVID all around. Uh, it's it's a desperate situation out there. There needs to be a real relief package, either from the federal level or the state level or both uh, to help provide some relief to those folks. But what happened in district court was that the judge said because the city of Oklahoma City has removed their fine, they're not going to be enforcing that on their fine, that that issue was moot for now. And there's going to be a January hearing on whether or not state law would even allow that to take place at all. So, I mean, there's still going to be a question of that as to whether state law and municipal law would allow the governor and or a mayor uh, to be able to close bars and restaurants at a certain time in response to a pandemic. Neva. Well, and. And the other side of this, uh, along along with what all Ryan just described, is the fact that uh, these uh, the the bar owners and uh, bartenders, club owners mm-hmm. uh, that uh, have uh, filed this lawsuit, they seem very interested in what they describe as wanting to get a solid decision on whether or not the use of the Oklahoma Riot Control and Prevention Act is is lawful. So you've got this uh, you've got this difference of opinion. Um, the club owners and bartenders contending that that was passed to really fight uh, civil dis- uh, disorder um, and not infectious diseases or a pandemic. And you've got the city in their court filing saying that uh, that it did Oklahoma City Civil Emergency Code. Uh, it was a state of emergency, uh, such as they proclaimed by the mayor, because you have a local transmission of a, of a disease that is a public disaster. And so they believe that it falls under um, the public uh, peace and health and, and life and prosperity um, uh, uh, clause. So I, th- I think it's interesting that uh, uh, that you've got this th- this real contrast um, on the on the legal dispute, and it will be interesting to see whether they really can move forward through the courts as uh, as the group's attorney uh, suggested uh, when he was before the uh, district court judge. Yeah, and you know the the main argument from the plaintiffs in this case, the bar owners and 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 uh, and, and employees of bars and restaurants that have filed this case, their main argument is just what Neva said, and that's a. 1968 law. What they're saying is that when the legislature passed that law in 1968, it was intended to as a response to 
the upheaval that was happening across uh, the United States, uh, you know, during the civil rights movement uh, in, the, in the 1960s. And it wasn't, you know, the legislature didn't intend at all for this to deal with something like a pandemic. Um, now, that legislative history is only relevant in a court case, though, if the language is uh, is ambiguous, if there's some uncertainty as to what that language means. And frankly, I just don't see that there's any uncertainty whenever it says that the governor and then the municipal code, the mayor have the power whenever there's a finding that you have public disorder, disaster, or a riot exists uh, within any part of the state. And, you know, that language right there, you know, whether or not the legislature intended uh, intended it only in response to what they are seeing in other cities in the in the late 1960s or not, that language is pretty clear. And so I don't think that Judge Ogden or any other appellate judge is going to find that that uh, is ambiguous to the point where they have to go back and look at legislative history. Governor Stitt sets a date for a vote on the state Senate seat held by Stephanie Bice. The February 9th election comes after Bice beat Congresswoman Kendra Horn last month. Neva, how competitive will it be for this Oklahoma City District seat? Well, I think it'll be it, it it'll be very competitive. I mean, you have a special election. It's certainly, as we as we've talked many times, a different dynamic than in a regular election cycle. So you have uh, an election date for the primary set for February 9th. Uh, we have we're going through the Christmas holiday season. They're basically uh, they're basically going to be in a 30 or 45 day drill in all mm-hmm, practicality. Yeah. And you will have uh, no doubt uh, Republicans will field a, 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 probably anywhere from six to six to 10 or more candidates uh, that will jump into this race because it is a winner take all primary. So someone very likely in a multi-way primary uh, could win the nomination with, let's say, 20 or 25 percent of the vote or maybe less. Uh, so I think when when we look at that um, and and we and we look at the just the 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 numbers, the percentages uh, that the makeup of the district itself, you have 58 percent registered Republicans, 24 uh, uh, percent registered Democrats, rest independents. So, I mean, it clearly is a seat that the Republicans can hold on to and will be very focused on. But the pri- the primary will be the key. I think uh, from uh, all indications right now, the 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 um, probably front runner or perceived front runner in, in pre filing next, uh, which is next week, mm-hmm. would be Rob Johnson, who held that seat. Um, Prior to Stephanie Bice uh, winning uh, winning the seat, he's uh, Rob Johnson's of kind of a well-known political figure in terms of having been in the House, been in the Senate. He would have six years left if he were successful uh, uh, in the endeavor. Uh, his father, uh, interestingly enough, had the seat before he did. So there there is a uh, there's a history there. Obviously, someone who run before to have a fundraising apparatus of a volunteer network, a lot of the infrastructure things. So that that type of candidate can hit the ground running. Not to say that uh, there aren't many other candidates that will jump into this race. Many are out there certainly looking at it. Um, so there, there's no foregone conclusion what will happen. But in a short race, money and volunteers and the ability to get the message out quickly and effectively will be will be a big key to this. So. Um, and I think on the Democrat side, I, I have every uh, expectation that they will look for a strong candidate, knowing that in special elections, it is a great opportunity to uh, uh, be competitive and maybe pick off a seat that the that the Republicans have. But I think that's still going to be a tall order when you're looking at a district that's basically 
uh, northern Oklahoma County, uh, eastern Canadian County, and and largely Edmond and and a little bit of Yukon. So it's uh, it it will be fascinating to watch this early next year. Ryan. Yeah, I talked to uh, my state senator, Julia Kurt, this morning, who is uh, working with <clears throat> Senate Democrats and, and recruiting folks and, and trying to, you know, as Neva said, take advantage of a special election cycle where, I mean, we saw that up in, in Tulsa with Senator Alice Knightley Freeman, who was recently defeated uh, in, a, in the general election, but had won that state Senate seat there in a, in a special election. And even if you just pick a seat up like this for a couple of years, uh, I mean, it's helpful. I mean, it's not going to change the dynamics in the Senate. It's, it's heavily lopsided, uh, in favor of the Republican majority, but every seat counts. And if, if you're the democratic caucus, you know, having somebody there, uh, having an incumbent makes it a lot easier to try to even be competitive in a seat like this, whenever the general, whenever a regular election comes around, but even for a couple of years would be really important. Um, and you know, Senator Kurt said that there are there's at least one Democrat that's announced. There's another uh, that they anticipate announcing soon. They're excited about this seat. Uh, you know, she said that it's all about turnout. Mm-hmm. And she said, looking at the demographics of this district, the demographics of this district have changed a lot since it was drawn in 2010. Uh, and she said there are 20,000 new residents there versus 2010. Uh, that the demo- that the demographics are a very young district, um, you know, a lot a lot of voters in their 30s, and so they they see this as as a seat where Democrats can be competitive. Uh, there's going to be uh, a very uh, I think spirited primary in the Republican side, and I think there's even a Libertarian out there. I don't know if they've announced yet or not, but there's a Libertarian that's thinking of running. <clears throat> so this is as, as Neva said, a Republican favored seat, but in a special election. Uh, maybe not all bets are off, but most bets are off. Right. It depends on who turns out to actually vote. A state law to keep trains from stopping at cross streets for longer than 10 minutes gets declared unconstitutional. A federal judge permanently halted enforcement, saying it interfered with U.S. law on commerce. Ryan, did you think this might happen? Yeah. And, and, you know, and this isn't just because I watched planes, trains and automobiles last night with my son, Uh, you know, you know, for for nearly two centuries, uh, since the time that they started acquiring land and and laying tracks, uh, railroad operators have been some of the most powerful uh, political and legal operators in the United States. I mean, Abraham Lincoln, Daniel Webster, uh, these, you know, before, uh, before and during and after, in some cases, they're, they're, you know, storied political careers, mm-hmm. they represented railroads uh, and sometimes in all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, some of the most famous Supreme Court decisions uh, have to do with railroads. Uh, and so, you know, while they may not have as much power uh, in a state legislature to stop a bill like this, I don't think that there is ever any question that there would be some challenge at some point once the state began issuing citations for these delays um, and that they would appeal to federal law. Uh, you know, if you're if you're a resident in any of these communities that have railroad crossings, I mean, you recognize both the inconvenience and as a, the attorney general, Mike Hunter said, the, the danger that's posed by some of these very long delays of railroad crossings. If you have paramedics that can't cross from one side of the town to the other uh, for, you know, in some of these instances over an hour, uh, then you're putting people's lives at risk. And so the judge in this case said they didn't they weren't saying that the state had zero ability to regulate uh, railroads, but in this instance, they didn't. Um, and you know I, the way you change that would be federal law. And I would just I would be surprised if every member of Oklahoma's congressional delegation or ever and or including uh, Congresswoman-elect Bice hasn't been proactively contacted by the railroad industry 
trying to you know keep them from taking this state issue to Congress so that Congress would give states like Oklahoma the ability to regulate delays at railroad crossings. I mean, this is this is going to be, a, I think, a proactive lobbying effort on their part now in Congress. Neva. Well, I, I think it's interesting that the 18 page opinion, I mean, clearly gives some very helpful guidance uh, if uh, lawmakers want to look at introducing uh, legislation in the next session. And I, I think we can expect that that uh, could could be likely because what what was said is that a state or local government can address grade level railroad crossing issues like we're talking about. And and the key is they have to do it in a manner that doesn't run afoul of federal law. So as long as they don't, uh, you know, hit that wall with the. Uh, uh, running, you know, running up against the Interstate Commerce uh, Act, then there is the potential for still some uh, legislative remedies to uh, uh, to be looked at. And I think that there will be folks that certainly will take that into account. And that's where the give and take, even, uh, you know, with the railroads and, and, and the other folks can come into play and try try to address some of these issues that are that are significant, uh, particularly when you're talking in communities where it does uh, pose a real uh, health and safety risk, you know, with long waits on on the tracks with these trains and no way to uh, uh, no way to quickly divert around. So it's an issue that uh, uh, there's been obviously many things said and as as Brian alluded to. I mean, the fact that the, when you start talking about uh, what oftentimes were were called the railroad barons, the railroad of, barons uh, yes. uh, of centuries gone by. I mean, we have in Oklahoma, we have uh, 900, you know, 900 plus uh, uh, miles uh, of railroad uh, uh, tracks throughout the state. So it is something that is important and something that all parties uh, certainly are sensitive to. And I think we'll uh, we'll watch with interest to see what uh, uh, possible legislation may uh, uh, be put on the table in this upcoming session. I'm trying to find it in the Oklahoma article, but I did, Ryan, is there any way to appeal this? I don't know if Mike Hunter is planning on appealing it at all. If there is a place to even appeal it once it's gone through federal judge. Yeah, no, you you could appeal to to the Tenth Circuit. You could appeal to the United States Supreme Court. I mean, the the there's no guarantee that those appeals will will be taken right. up uh, or that you'll have any success there. Um, but you know, as, as Neva said, I, you know, we we in Oklahoma, I don't think that we because we we haven't really seen um, a real uh, you know, passenger rail system in Oklahoma. Right. Uh, but freight rail in Oklahoma and short line operators in Oklahoma, uh, that's not a thing of the past. They they provide valuable services in Oklahoma, and it, and it's a big part of our of our state's right. industry and economy. Um, and you know, and I think it's really exciting. Uh, and so I'm glad that the legislature may be talking about rail railroads and and you know and improving upon what we've got and building on up on what what we've got and we've got a president elect in Joe Biden who has been a champion uh, of of uh, railroads and rail travel and so maybe uh you know we're going to see this resurgence uh at the federal level at the state level of conversations about how to improve uh, rail in Oklahoma including improving rail for folks that aren't on the on the tracks themselves but are sitting at these cross uh, at these uh, at these crossways where they need to get across and there's a, a really long delay Oklahoma County Commissioner Kevin Calvey is asking for a delay on a judge's ruling over the county jail trust to oust immigration agents from the jail. Calvey says he wants time for state lawmakers to address the issue in the upcoming session. In fact, Representative John Pfeiffer has already announced legislation requiring jails to comply with ICE requests. Neva, do you think lawmakers will take up this bill next year? 
Well, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, uh, the House uh, last year in February voted uh, overwhelmingly, I think of 7821, uh, passed a bill that that would require the county jails to comply with ICE detainees, but the Senate never took it up. Um, so I, I think it may be an issue where it, it very well uh, could come down to kind of the same the, the same composition in an upcoming session, because I think there are a number of senators uh, that uh, uh, express reservations at the time about the fact that uh, talking about requiring or mandating uh, something. I mean, who's going to pay for those extra costs of the, uh, you know, of those folks uh, being held? And a lot of things, when you start talking about particularly county jails and in these smaller counties and budgets and, you know, a lot of other things come into play, not just the idea of, uh, you know, the issue, the kind of the overarching issue that, uh, uh, Commissioner Calvi uh, is interested in, and that is trying to uh, uh, tr trying to make it where the jail trust would, in fact, have to follow uh, the ICE policy that they uh, that the commissioners passed two to one back in October. So it's a it, it's an interesting uh, it's a it's an interesting kind of fight that continues. Uh, the Oklahoma, Oklahoma County District Judge uh, Cindy Trong. Uh, she had set a hearing earlier this week for January 5th uh, to either put the case on hold or dismiss it. So I think, you know, this is uh, Calvi is trying to buy time to uh, see if there can be some legislative action, uh, uh, legislative action, if that date can be pushed off the ruling uh, can be pushed off till April. So there are lots of moving pieces. The district attorney is weighed in uh, along with the, the jail trust uh, wanting the judge to dismiss the case. So uh, it'll be uh, it'll be fascinating to see because there's certainly a lot of players in the mix on on both sides. Ryan. Yeah, I think that this case gets dismissed in, in January. Uh, it's it's a really heavy lift to ask a district judge to put off ruling on a case um, on the grounds that there's a speculative legislative <laughs> action uh, that, that could happen in three or four months and the governor could sign. I'm with Neva. I, I do think that there's probably legislative support to pass something like this. Uh, I think that the governor would likely sign something like this. But, you know, that that's just too speculative uh, for, I think, a judge to want to walk into. I think that Judge Strong more likely is going to say, uh, Commissioner Calvi, I'm dismissing this. If the legislature does something in the future, uh, come back to me. Uh, you know, come back to this court and, and make your case then. And there's the, the the separate question of even if the legislature does that, even if the legislature creates this obligation of counties or the jail trust uh, to allow or to, to cooperate with ICE on these detainers, there's the separate issue of whether or not that cooperation is in violation of federal law, including the United States Constitution. Because essentially what the county is asking and Commissioner Calvi uh, are asking uh, the jail administrators to do is to you know, have somebody who's ready to be released. They've, they've done everything that they need to do to be released and asking them to hold them for up to two more days beyond their release date so that ICE can process them. Well, you know, if you think about our, our constitutional protections, if the government is going to take any one of us, regardless of our immigration status, is going to take any person, uh, because some of these folks may be adjudicated by ICE to not be, uh, you know, need, need to be detained or deported. You know, so you could have a, a U.S. citizen 
that is held for two days beyond the time that they were supposed to be let out, just so an administrative agency at the federal level could take a look at it. There's also the speculative question of what the Biden administration will do uh, with ICE detainers altogether. That's, you know, that's speculative as well. Um, and then on top of that, you've got the issue of whether or not, I think the, the more interesting issue that isn't speculative, and that's the one that Judge Strong's going to you know, possibly have to rule on, is whether or not the county commission the Oklahoma County Commission has this authority or whether it's the jail trust that has this authority. Um, and that's going to be a, a really, that's going to be a really important takeaway from any order that she has. Um, and, and, uh, I think that, you know, could possibly empower the jail trust to operate without having to, you know, deal with this oversight from the County Commission. The Capitol is getting a new state seal. The bronze seal measuring 14 feet in diameter and weighing 3,000 pounds is getting installed on the ground floor in February. It includes a five-point star inside the territory of Oklahoma, a pioneer, the emblem of the five tribes, and the Latin state motto meaning labor conquers all things. Ryan, what do you think of this new art piece coming to the Capitol? I, I think it, it's exciting. It's uh, it's a it's a moment uh, that, you know, I think... Uh, uh, represents the completion or, or the near completion of this, of this capital restoration project. You know, I, I first went to the Capitol um, in any real capacity in, in 1996 as a, as a Senate page. Uh, and, you know, you're walking around from, from then to now, uh, it, it, is, it is so different. And, um, you know, there, there are certainly things that I, I miss about the old building just for, for nostalgia's sake. But in terms of a user-friendly capital that's safe, to work in. I mean, if you think folks that, that go to that building, it's, you know, session lasts from February to May, but there are people that work in and out of that building 12 months of the year. Yeah. And they were working in some pretty abysmal conditions. I mean, everything from, you know, regular sewage uh, backed up in the basement to asbestos to, you know, scary wiring that, that sometimes worked, you know, things falling off the roof onto people's desk. Um, and so that dilapidated building uh, and the, the update that it's received is pretty remarkable. I, I went to the state capitol uh, for the first time since March um, in a, for an interim study in the last couple of months. Uh, and I tell you what, you know, as somebody who's been around the capitol a lot, I got lost trying to find the entrance. Uh, and, and when you go in that new entrance and what was the, the old basement, when you go in that new entrance, mm -hmm. it, is, it is a totally different experience. And I think that uh, it reflects well upon the state of Oklahoma. Neva. I completely. I think uh, uh, really this entire renovation of the Capitol, the restoration project. I mean, it's it's been going on for five for five yeah. years now, uh, it, but it is nearing completion. I think the completion date really is still uh, on the books as 2022. But they've moved uh, a long way down the road, and 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 Ryan is right. I mean, it is so impressive to see just the changes that are already there, and. I think the capstone of this uh, this new seal. I mean, the the Terrazzo seal that they they uh, tore out uh, during during all of this renovation. It had been in there for 54 years, so I mean, it had it had served its uh, purpose and time well. But this, I think, will be uh, and impressive because as folks come to the Capitol, I mean, this will be kind of the focal point that they will be able to see from every from every vantage point uh, uh, as they look down uh, in the rotunda uh, and see that uh, seal on the, what is now the first floor, as, as Brian said, used to be the basement for folks that had been to the Capitol previously. But um, I, th I think that this was one of the wisest moves that uh, 
that was made back when the lawmakers approved the $245 million mm-hmm. dollars in uh, because the repairs were desperately needed. And then to do the additional, um, the additional restoration and bringing it back to really its elegance and, and really glory of how it was first uh, constructed and, and the appearance of it, I think is something that all Oklahomans will be able to, uh, uh, to visit and have a great deal of pride. I think the state seal, you know, which um, as they talked about uh, in some of the releases uh, this week, announcing the, the the state seal being put in that um, it does represent one of Oklahoma's oldest symbols and so you have this contrast I mean the 300 feet directly above it you have the guardian which uh, uh, was uh, is one of uh, Oklahoma's newest symbols so I think that contrast and I think the beauty of kind of tying all of that together from a historical perspective I think uh, is something that uh, all Oklahomans not just the folks that are there working every day inside that building and doing the people's business but every school child that visits on that right. trip uh, to see the capital to every a visitor from uh, not only fi- all 50 states but to, from around the the come and um, experience that. I think uh, I think it reflects well on all of us, and I applaud the great efforts that have been done by the uh, uh, by the folks that are working on on this project and and the Manhattan Construction uh, uh, Company in particular, who have uh, I think been the you know the shepherds of much of much of the uh, the work that's been done. And well, and like Neva said, I, I love that dynamic of old and new, mm-hmm. uh, and, and yeah. both the the Seal and the Guardian were were cast at the same foundry, uh, the foundry in Norman. Um, you know, one of one of my first uh, jobs out at the state capitol was working for my friend and, and mentor, State Senator Kelly Haney. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was right around the time that he had completed the Guardian and they put it out on the, the north steps of the capitol. And I got to stand out there and, and help bring people, like Neva said, not just from Oklahoma and all 50 states, for, but people from around the world to come up and take a photo with the Guardian while it was still on the north steps uh, before it was placed on top of the dome. And so to, to know that you know, you've got that that old and new uh, contrast there. It's it's really really exciting. And Eva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of this week in Oklahoma politics at KOSU.org.